Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Our topic today, does the First Amendment permit divorced couples from disparaging each other on social media? Hmm. That was the question tackled by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in a recent decision, Shack v. Shack. It is an interesting case, to say the least, that involves families and free speech, situated at the intersection of family and constitutional law. Here to help us discuss the case and unwind the law behind the decision is Tim Brockler, a family law attorney at the firm of Myrick O'Connell in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Tim, thanks so much for joining us again here on uh, the On Air Show. Thank you very much for having me again, Howard. Sure. Well, this is a juicy case. It, it is. It's a, it's a very interesting case. This case began in the probate and family court, and it was a divorce case. Uh, the parties in the case were married very briefly, about uh, a year and a half. But during that time, they had a child together. The mother filed for divorce when the child was one year old. Uh, later, she had sought an emergency motion to remove the father from the the marital home that they were living in together due to what she alleged was hostile behavior on his part. And and in a divorce, I'll say, you know, this is something that the courts can do under statute. A spouse has to show that with, without an order to vacate that their or their children's health safety and welfare could be harmed um, if the other spouse is allowed to continue to live in the home. And so that's what the mother in this case thought. She alleged that the father handled the child roughly and was aggressive and had substance abuse issues. Uh, so after hearing, the judge ordered the father to, to vacate the home, and he gave the mother temporary sole custody of the child. Along with that motion to vacate, the mother had also filed another motion asking the court to prohibit the father from posting disparaging remarks on social media about her and the custody litigation. And after hearing on that, uh, the the judge was apparently convinced and then uh, issued a temporary order that was was what we'd call a non-disparagement order. And so, so what that order did was two things. The first thing it said was that neither the mother or the father could post any comments or references about the divorce litigation on social media. And then it also prohibited either of uh, them from disparaging one another. And it also prohibited them from permitting any third party to disparage the other, uh, especially if the child was in hearing range. And, you know, if you think about it, that's really un believably broad, um, particularly with this prohibition on um, not allowing anyone else to say something bad about your spouse. So that order was a bit problematic from the get-go. And after that order was issued, uh, the mother ended up filing a contempt against the father for violating the non-disparagement order. And just a, a reminder, contempt in a divorce is when one party is violated in order, whether by doing something they were prohibited from doing or not doing something that they were otherwise obligated to do under the order. And what the mother alleged in her contempt was that the father uh, sort of went 
crazy, again, posting things on social media about her and the case. She said that he had shared these posts with members of her religious community, as well as business clients that she had in the community. And this contempt, it was actually heard in front of a, of, of a different probate and family court judge. And that's not necessarily uncommon. The judges get moved all around and reassigned on cases all the time. And one of the father's defenses to the contempt was that the judge's non-disparagement order was uh, an improper prior restraint on speech. Free speech is something that we think about as really one of the most fundamental rights guaranteed by the Constitution. That's why it's the First Amendment, after all. And so a prior restraint on speech is really just the government banning someone from saying or publishing something prior to them saying or publishing it. And so it, it really is the essence of censorship, which really any free society you know, pretty much shuns, and that's why we have the First Amendment. Sure. The initial ruling saying nothing can be said in any way or anything that even smacks of being disparaging by anybody <laughs> is prohibited is just shocking to me, almost uh, makes me speechless. So This was the father's argument, that this really broad order issued by the first probate court judge was a violation of his First Amendment rights as a prior restraint on speech. And the second judge that heard this argument, that heard the contempt, actually agreed with the father. And he found that the first judge's non-disparagement order was an unlawful prior restraint on speech and that therefore it violated the father's constitutional rights to free speech. Um, but this second judge, he wasn't completely against the idea of non-disparagement orders, and he said that you could do them so long as there was a compelling state interest and that the order was narrowly tailored. And so this judge essentially felt that protecting a child from his or her parents disparaging one another was a compelling enough interest to warn a non-disparagement order, so long as that order was specific and narrow enough. And so what the, the second probate and family court judge did was essentially try to fix the first judge's order by making it more narrowly tailored and adding in more limitations and specifics. So what he did to the order was trimmed it up and made it a lot more specific. He said, first of all, until the party's uh, child was 14, so he put sort of a time limit on it, that neither could disparage the other on social media. And that specifically meant about the other person's parenting ability or about the morality of the other person. That was the word that he used. Mm -hmm. And the judge listed several specific expressions that were prohibited <laughs> that I won't say here to keep right. it family friendly. <laughs> right. But, but you know, I, I can only guess from reading the case that they'd been plucked from the father's actual postings that he'd made about the mother. And they, they, they were quite awful. Uh, so I'll, I'll give him that. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and then, then the second part of the order that the judge was, was, again, sort of fixing is that so long as the child was between three and 14 years old, that neither could disparage the other party if the child happened to be within 100 feet of the parent making the comment or the gesture or whatever it is, or 
further if the child was able to hear, read, or see the disparaging comment or gesture or action at some point in the future. They were prohibited from doing that. And what the second judge did in this case after he made that order, so rather than send this couple kind of running off with these orders, he actually stayed the orders, which means that they're sort of temporarily on hold and not in in effect. And he stayed them in order to report questions about the constitutionality of the orders to our state's higher courts. Really, what he was deciding was before these take effect, he wanted to ask the higher courts to weigh in on the constitutionality of his more specific orders. The questions were taken up on direct review by the Supreme Judicial Court, which gets us to the decision that uh, was issued that we're talking about. So how did the court answer the judge's questions exactly? The judge's questions were framed pretty broadly and and really boiled down to asking whether in a divorce are non-disparagement orders improper restraints on free speech when you've got this interest in protecting children? Essentially, you know, is protecting a, a child from his or her parents disparaging one another important enough to restrain speech and, you know, albeit vulgar and, and hurtful speech? And they didn't exactly answer that question. And that happens a lot where higher courts are asked to rule on very broadly framed issues. And what they instead end up doing, as they did in this case, is to just examine the particular facts of this case and rule whether or not the particular orders issued were unconstitutional. And how the the Supreme Judicial Court dealt with this was to note that non-disparagement orders, they're very heavily disfavored, and they're not going to be upheld unless there's an extremely good reason. They analyzed some First Amendment decisions issued by the U.S. Supreme Court previously, which have established some precedent that you really have to show that there will almost be without a doubt some grave harm without the restriction on speech and that there isn't any less restrictive way other than restraining that speech to mitigate that harm. And the court also highlighted some some Massachusetts decisions, those decisions that have analyzed prior restraints on speech under the U.S. Constitution, but also under our state constitution, uh, because we have a state constitution which also grants our citizens a right to free speech. And the state court decisions essentially note very similar things and note what the second family court judge had initially said that a prior restriction on speech is really only going to be allowed if there is some sort of compelling state interest to protect and the restriction on the speech is limited as much as possible. Tim, did the Supreme Judicial Court say that protecting a child from being exposed to disparagement between his or her parents, did they say that that would be a compelling state interest? Uh, Yeah, they did acknowledge that protecting a child from this kind of behavior is a compelling state interest. But they they really stopped short of definitively saying whether or not that interest is compelling enough to justify prior restraints on speech in, in sort of the broader question that the judge initially was looking for. And instead, they, they just sort of said, well, even if we assume protecting a child from such harm were compelling enough to, to justify some restraint on speech, you'd really need some extreme circumstances that were present in this particular case. And what the court pointed out 
they noted that there really wasn't any grave, imminent harm to this particular child in this case. And they relied on the fact that the child in this particular case was a toddler and too young to read the father's social media posts. They pointed out that this child wasn't in any way uniquely vulnerable to experiencing harm from this behavior by his father that might justify a restraint on the father's speech. And, you know, we think about this stuff being posted on the internet as being out there forever, but the court here said that that concern was just way too speculative, given the child's age, to justify restraining the father's speech right now. And it just wasn't an extreme enough circumstance. So that would beg the question, Tim, what kind of extreme circumstances might need to have existed in this case that would have justified the non-disparagement order? Uh, well, that, that's a big question left open by this case. It suggests that protecting a child from his, his or her parents disparaging one another is an interest that uh, they want to protect, but it doesn't give us any insight into what might be considered an extreme enough set of facts that would actually justify a non-disparagement order. And we only know from this case that this situation, in this particular case, wasn't extreme enough. I think if there was a future case where, you know, let's say maybe the child was old enough to read these comments and it was having a negative impact on that child's mental well-being, maybe that could be considered extreme enough to justify an order like the family court judge uh, did here. But that's going to be a question that's going to have to be litigated in some future case down the road. And there's also another question left open by this case. Because the circumstances here weren't extreme enough to, to make the state's interest in protecting this child compelling enough, the court didn't even bother addressing the specific orders in this case. Um, if these orders had been issued in a more extreme case where a judge might be justified in issuing a non-disparagement order, we don't know whether the ones that the judge issued in this case were narrowly tailored enough uh, that they would be upheld in, in a more extreme case. So that's another issue that's going to be left and, and have to be dealt with in some future case. So just uh, taking a step back, Tim, looking at this case from 30,000 feet, what is the take-home of this case, and how should the family courts deal with these issues going forward? So th this is one of those odd decisions where we can say that it was probably decided correctly based on constitutional grounds, um, and that's because of the very strong protections that we want to place on free speech, whether mm -hmm. that's good or bad. Mm. So the father in this case, what he succeeded in doing was establishing his right to be able to publicly trash and disparage the, the mother of his child. And so where does that really leave him? In the family courts, when parents disparage one another, that's something that is almost always going to be factored into custody determinations. And a parent who can't stop themselves from disparaging the other parent. And particularly when that happens in front of a child, they can really find themselves with greatly decreased or even completely suspended parenting time. Parents who, who are the subject of online harassment by their co-parent, they can seek harassment orders in the courts to prevent the disparagement. They could bring defamation claims, depending on what the disparagement entails. But obviously, these are all after-the-fact remedies and after the damage is done. One thing that the court in this case noted was that there really isn't anything stopping people 
in a custody case from entering into um, agreements not to disparage one another, and those will be upheld. And in most of the agreements that myself and my colleagues do where there are kids involved, um, we often do have language that neither parent's going to do anything or say anything that's going to negatively interfere with the child's relationship or affection for the other parent. And and I'd say in cases where disparagement has been an issue, we'd, we'd really aim to punch up that language and make it clear that this sort of behavior is unacceptable. And then if one of those parents violates that agreement, to not disparage the other parent, then the other parent would have a means to bring that issue before the court. And again, that is something that's going to be be looked at um, very poorly against the parent who who is disparaging the other. It's interesting that you raise that, that given this case and given what happened here, given the First Amendment rights, et cetera, et, et cetera, of course, you can always just contract your way to non-disparagement, as you mentioned. Correct. Right. So that's something to keep in mind. The question is, who is more childish in, in these cases, the parents or the child? <laughs> this, has been well a, this has been a fascinating discussion, and it's pretty timely. The case just came out by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, Shack v. Shack. The question was, does the First Amendment permit divorced couples' parents from disparaging each other on social media. Tim Brockler from Myrick O'Connell, I want to thank you for taking the time to quickly talk with us on on air with Myrick O'Connell. If folks want to contact you, not in a disparaging way, but very civil, um, about uh, this issue or any other family law issues, how can they contact you? I can be reached by telephone at uh, 617-391-2164, or email is also great, which uh, is T. D-R-A-U-G-H-L-E-R, and that's at MyrickO'Connell.com. Thanks, Tim. I'm Howard Kaplan. On behalf of Myrick O'Connell attorney Tim Brockler, thanks for joining us. Take care, stay safe, and stay civil. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. 